0: This first reading can be found on page 275 in in the Pew Bibles, but it's also on our service sheet, and it will be on the screen. And we're reading from the first book of Samuel, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 and continuing to verse 12. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early in the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen, lying on the threshold. Only his body remained; his hands and had his head, hands had been broken off, and were lying there on the threshold. That's why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashtar. Step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the ark. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven.
1: The reading continues into chapter 6 and goes down as far as chapter 7, verse 1. When the Ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you'll be healed, and you'll know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers. Because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumours and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them? Did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. And in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us, but it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two, cow, two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumours. Then the cows went straight up towards Ben Shemish, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or turn to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Bethshemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings And made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? They then sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill, and consecrated Eliasa his son
2: to guard the Ark of the Lord. Thank you all, um, and um, to bring God's word is uh, is a privilege, and uh, I'm glad that we can all be here together. So, as we come to this passage, I uh, just want to conjure up an image that. Maybe a little bit more familiar um, with the recent release of the new Indiana Jones movie, and um, the the rush that always accompanies these these sequels for everyone to rewatch all the previous films. Um, There's been like a renewed interest uh, in this small box that stands at the center of the story that we had read to us today, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, So in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the previous movies, Indy is sucked into this race against time to find the Ark before it falls into the hands of the Nazis, uh, who believe it to be a weapon of mass destruction that could turn the Second World War in their favor. Uh, One of my favorite podcasts is um, called The Rest is History with Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook. And in their episode discussing the treatment of the Ark in Indiana Jones, they make the point that in the movie, uh, some of the Nazis feel a little bit uneasy around the Ark because it feels a bit Jewish for them. Um, Now, obviously, the the basic reason for this unease is immediately obvious. It would automatically stem from their anti-Semitism. However, there might be another reason why this comment of theirs would resonate also with us, although for non-anti-Semitic reasons, obviously. Um, When we read an Old Testament narrative like this, often the first thought that crosses our mind is, well, thank goodness we've left behind this primitive and problematic religion. Uh, Well, simply reading it can often be enough to fill us with unease, let alone the thought that this has anything to do with the religion that we follow. Yeah? Yeah. Well, as you may have already gathered from this series so far, the book of 1 Samuel will not do us any favors here. Not only will 1 Samuel not set us at ease, one of its basic themes is how God sought to, if I can make up a word, re religion for those who had turned religion into a matter of personal ease and choice. So remember that we are at the end of the period of Judges where we are told everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. That was their religion. There is a form of religion which leads one to take oneself too seriously and God not seriously enough. That's the problem that we are facing here at the beginning of 1 Samuel. God is trying to get their and our attention here to help us avoid a fate far worse than anything we encounter in the old testament so rather than trying to explain away passages like this we're instead we're instead called to sit in the unease that they generate asking difficult questions of ourselves and our own time how far away are we truly from the attitude and approach of the israelites here how have we also failed to have a right appreciation of god and where does that lead us and as we do all of this, what we are effectively doing is we're, we're pushing through the discomfort for a real encounter with the living God, a God who's nothing like the caricature that we have in our heads. Let's see, it's only by taking God at face value that we will truly have a chance to see his face. So let's dive into the text and see what this passage teaches us about true religion and how this challenges and magnifies our understanding of God. Well, the first thing that we need to understand about the Ark is that it was the one object in the Old Testament to which God routinely attached his presence. As the Ark of the Covenant, it served as the fundamental point of reference for God's relationship with Israel. That's what covenant means, after all, isn't it? The organization of a relationship. But it was so much more than this also. You see, on top of this four-by-two-foot box, there was a sheet of gold known as the mercy seat, And at each end of the mercy seat was a figure of of a cherubim, these angels, these really impressive angels, which, as you know from your Apocalyptic Visions Bible trivia, were the creatures who stand in the presence of God in heaven. In other words, this mercy seat was the place where God's presence would appear in a special way for a personal encounter. And indeed, in Exodus, the narrative tells us that when Moses would go into the tabernacle where the ark was, he would meet with God face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. You see there? As the story progresses, however, it becomes clear that God's presence was not something that just kind of anybody could draw near to, just like that. And this passage reminds us of this like no other. You see, God's presence has has and had Uh, and still does, has a weightiness about it, which affected everyone who drew near. Now, as long as people were ignoring God, as we saw in the period of the Judges, and living as they pleased, this effect was obscured because no one was even seeking to come into God's presence. The book of 1 Samuel, however, reverses this trend and reintroduces the idea of a religion where God is actually present and what this means for us in practice. You see, in 1 Samuel, we finally have a judge, Samuel, who is dedicated to God, and that's the point of the first few chapters. And with his arrival on the scene, we suddenly start hearing about the presence of God again via explicit references to what? To the Ark of the Covenant. It comes back on the scene. From only one reference in the whole of the book of Judges to the Ark, all of a sudden in the first six chapters of Samuel, we have 35 references to the Ark of the Covenant, it's almost as if the Bible authors are telling us here, God is back in the house. And the question is, what exactly happens when we come back into God's presence? Well, I think this, this passage shows us three things that we can pick up here about God's presence that wake us up to the nature, uh, the true nature of religion. And we see here, first of all, the weightiness of God's presence. Second of all, we'll see the witness of God's presence, and finally, the worth of God's presence. So let's look at them one by one. Uh, first of all, the weightiness of God's presence. What do I mean by the weightiness here? Well, in the Hebrew text, the word for God's glory, which signified his presence, was kabod. There was, there was this radiance, which was his shekinah, so said like, kind of like the light, that was also like their present. But this radiance emanated from his kabod, his glory, which literally means... His weightiness, that's the meaning of that word, kabod, his weightiness. Well, here's the interesting thing. This word is the same root word used for the affliction that the ark wrought on the Philistines. Exactly the same root word. We see this in verse 7 of chapter 5. So when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. And that, that word for heavy is used repeatedly to describe this experience. So when the ark brings the presence of God, and more specifically his glory, his, his present glory, among the Philistines, this glory crushes and devastates them. Yet this same glory had previously brought victory and blessing to the Israelites. Indeed, indeed that's, that's the very reason why, in the previous chapter, Hophni and Phinehas had brought the ark into battle, because they knew that in the, past, in the past, the presence of the ark had proved to be the difference between life and death for them. It had protected them in the wilderness, it had scattered their enemies, it had stopped a river from flowing, so that the whole nation could cross over to a new life after their ordeal of slavery in Egypt. They knew that the ark was for them, or so they thought. They thought. Well, later on in uh, Samuel chapter 2, we read that when the ark is placed in the house of a certain Obed-Edom, who is a Gittite and not even from the nation of Israel, that again the Lord blessed him and his entire household. It brings life. Well, what this tells us is that God's presence has such a weightiness about it it that it always has an extreme effect on us when we come into contact with it. It either brings life or in some cases it brings death. And here's the thing, those are the stakes with true religion. If you simply believe that God exists, you're not really practicing religion, you're just affirming an idea in your head. True religion entails seeking an audience, an encounter with the living God. And when you do this, you start to realize that the stakes are incredibly high. Now, in the New Testament and the subsequent church period that we are still living in today, there isn't the same idea of going to a specific place like the temple or the tabernacle or an object like the ark for an encounter with God. We can meet God where we are. However, there's certainly a sense in which we come to a a church service like this hoping and seeking an encounter with God in some kind of special way, together with the gathered people of God, and that's right and proper. And so the question at hand then is, as you, I mean, this applies to all of life, but let's apply it to this this morning. As you were on your way to church this morning, did you have in mind that you were coming to meet someone whose presence is potentially perilous or even lethal for you? Are there stakes anywhere even close to this for you in your own pursuit of religion and faith? Well, the Bible tells us that this is the same God. Same God, no different. When we come into his presence, we are drawing near to someone whose weightiness will either crush us into the ground or ground us for eternity. One of the classic books that speaks of the condition of uh, modern humankind in the, West, in the Western world is uh, Milan Kundera's The Un, Un, Unbearable Lightness of Being. You kind of get a lot just from the title, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, but as you delve into some of the themes that Kunda explores, you realize that he's basically trying to put into words the plight of modern people who wrestle daily with the importance of their decisions, and at the same time, the lack of importance of their decisions. Uh, it kind of like going, by going back and forth, uh, with how they feel life and interpersonal interactions to be weighty, enough to ground them, you know, their whole being, in, in a sense, at times. Uh, but then suddenly to drift away, just like that, and everything vanishes into thin air as if it never had any weight at all. And at one point, Kundra writes, "Loves are like empires. When the idea they are founded on crumbles, they too fade away." Well, we never get this with the God of the Bible. He's the complete opposite of that. If there's one thing that we learn here, it's that God's presence has a weightiness about it that we cannot find anywhere else. If you feel that life is meaningful in one moment and then suddenly dissipates into thin air, will you understand what Kundera is talking about. What we need is a kabod in our life. A weightiness that transcends all circumstance, that is as strong as life and death itself. It may be perilous to come close to this, but it's the only thing that can provide us with an eternal mooring, that can ground us existentially so we don't float away at the slightest disturbance or change of situation. Now, the idea of an encounter with the God of the, this God of the Ark of the Covenant, and it may be scary, menacing even, but what would you prefer? The Israelites had attempted something else, you see. They had set themselves free from the mooring of God's glory to live a life where everyone did as they pleased. Well, it didn't bring them what they expected. And the same is true for modern humankind. The society that Kundera describes is not so far removed from how most people conduct themselves today in 21st century Europe. We go about weighty matters, but with no means to ground ourselves. And so we float away overcome by the unbearable lightness of being. This is what is at stake with a true encounter with God. To see a weightiness that comes into your life, that grounds your existence finally and ultimately so you don't float away and lose yourself. Well, this doesn't answer the the maybe slightly more pressing question uh, at this point, which is what will become of us when this weightiness comes into our lives. So we've seen the weightiness. Well, what happens to us? Well, this is the second thing we see here, which is the witness of God's presence. What actually happens in practice when we encounter this weighty God and his glory? Well, one very simplistic understanding of God is that he is on the side of those who ostensibly follow him. Yes, yeah, so I'm a follower of God, God is going to support me in all the stuff I do. And this is the mistake made by Hophni and Phinehas in the previous chapter. They foolishly presumed that God will give them victory in battle simply by having the Ark of the Covenant in their midst. And they may even have thought that they had good reason to believe that this strategy would work, because in the past this is precisely what happened, as we said. The Israelites had won decisively whenever the Ark had led the charge. The testimony of the Ark, however, what actually happens in practice, speaks of a far more nuanced and complicated reality. You see, God's presence is not, and never could be, something that we are able to manipulate for our own personal ends. Reading the account of how the Ark is used by the Israelites in the previous chapter, chapter 4, one might also say that they are they're kind of working from the Nazi playbook. They're treating the Ark as a weapon of mass destruction to be manipulated for their own personal ends, regardless of the person of God Himself, it's kind of neither here nor there that the, the kind of that they're going to meet God. They just want to use it to destroy stuff. The way in which the Ark deals life or death to those around it is not a simple matter of unleashing it on the wrong people, resulting in like automatic carnage. It's first and foremost a matter of the heart. So this is clear simply in in the design of the Ark. Which had been given by God Himself, if we remember. So, if you think about the box, if the Ten Commandments inside the box provided the criteria for uh, how, for who could approach God, how you approach God, you know, you have to, you know, live live this way because that's that's what God is like, and that's what you need to be like to approach Him. Then, a relationship with God, if you think about it, would have been impossible. But that's only part of the testimony of the Ark. Yeah. Uh, And that's not what the Ark is all about. The Ark provided a meeting point with God despite people's inability to follow his law. And that was the whole point of the mercy seat. So the mercy seat on top, this gold seat where the presence of God actually was the meeting point, it provided a means for an impersonal encounter with God that was not on the basis of law but grace. That is why anyone approaching the ark was required to make a sacrifice beforehand to signify that they were approaching God on the basis of his mercy rather than their own moral excellence. So it should be more obvious now why the ploy to deploy, to deploy the ark in chapter 4 didn't work. If there was anyone who needed to seek God's mercy, it was, it was Hophni and Phinehas. You remember these guys who were from last week, who were just you know, really corrupt and abusive and... Um, you know, uh, but instead of seeking God's forgiveness, they just thought themselves invincible because they had the ark um, in, in their control. But we know that the power of the ark is not located in the object itself, but in the presence of God who resides there. So here's, here's the bottom line. Trying to use God's power while ignoring his will and refusing to seek his favor is surely a recipe for disaster. And so we come now to the present chapters again. We've seen that the disastrous results of trying to manipulate the presence of God for our own ends from the perspective of people who have received instructions about the ark, the Israelites. What is the testimony of the ark when it comes amongst people who have not explicitly received God's word? How does his presence operate there? That's the interesting thing that we see today. On the basis of the previous chapter, we can immediately dispel any notion of some kind of automatic carnage like the, ones, like the one imagined by the Nazis in Indiana Jones. When the Philistines are exposed to the Ark in the battle in chapter 4, not only are they not harmed by it, they defeat the Israelites and capture the Ark as a war trophy. Yes, It's not really lethal to them then. Moreover, since they certainly didn't sacrifice animals and recruit Levite priests, can we borrow a few Levites, you know, to transport it? Well, that also means that they must have touched it without being struck down. Yeah? So there's not this kind of, you touch it, automatically get zapped. So, yet here in chapters 5 and 6, they start dying in multitudes after. What's going on? Initially, nothing happens to them. Then they start dying all over the place. Well, here's where it gets interesting. Interesting. What's the first thing that happens when God's presence is introduced to this pagan culture? We see it in verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Well, God doesn't start, the Ark doesn't start by killing the people, it starts by destroying their idols. In this case, the, the god of crop fertility. And so Dagon falls down. Yeah, But the Philistines don't get the memo, and they prop up Dagon in his old place as if nothing has happened. So the next day, God makes it clear that this wasn't some kind of freakish accident. Topples Dagon once again, this time cutting off his head and his hands for good measure. It's almost as if he's saying... Look, you may have come into my presence by unconventional means, very unconventional, you like literally killed my people and stole my box, <laughs> you know, you've come into my presence by uncon- but you have your chance now to meet me truly if you abandon your false ways of interacting with the world and with me. And it's only, it's only after they don't respond to these warnings that the plagues and death starts. You see? The same applies with the Israelites. Israelites in chapter 6, though with a slight difference. In contrast to the Philistines who don't know what the rules and regulations are, the Israelites know very well that the ark must be placed in the temple apart from the people and no one should look at it or even touch it apart from the priests and, even, and then only after making sacrifices. So when at the first opportunity they look inside, the judgment does come immediately because they knew. Well, what does this tell us about the ark? it tells us that God is above all seeking a relationship with us. And he does it in all kinds of ways, depending on who he's engaging with. There's nothing here of this caricature of God, like we said, who's seeking to zap us at the slightest opportunity. God is interacting here with the enemies of his people with utmost patience. They may be ritually unclean, faithless, idolatrous, all kinds of nasty, but he's giving them every chance to turn around and have a relationship with him. And this should make us pause for reflection here. While the Philistine crop gods might seem like a religious reality far removed from our own, the gap isn't actually as large as we might think. You see, depending on a crop god as the basis of their power was sending the message that, you know, as long as the crops don't fail, we can be confident that we are strong and powerful and with it. That was the culture. That was the religion of the Philistines. What happens then when the crops do fail? their world comes tumbling down. The main thing that was keeping them grounded suddenly just floats away. What are the crops in your life? What are those things that if you lost them, you would lose yourself? We all live like this. We all ground ourselves in things which are not the God who made us. And in doing so, what happens? We come onto a collision course with God's kabod glory. But just look at the amazing opportunity that the Philistines are, given, are being given here. God has not even destroyed their crops to send them this strong message, message by devastating them personally and physically along with their idol. He's simply thrown down their idol. This is, this is something akin to maybe being uh, convicted in a, in a sermon like this or in a discussion with like, a Christian friend or even just by... Reading the Bible on your own or remembering God's word or listening to a song, like something speaks to you, and you're like, This idol now is being torn down, is being placed in front of me, and God hasn't even had to destroy me yet to get my attention. He's doing it already. You there's some point, they, those moments come in your life where you realize that God is toppling your idols to make space for his presence. Will you respond? See, God has no problem being placed in a foreign place, and right now that foreign place might even be your own heart. But when he enters there, he will not leave the furniture in place, especially if that furniture is an idol that's keeping you far away from him. The witness of the ark here is not of a capricious, nasty, small-minded, parochial God, but of a God who will enter any space with patience and with mercy. But you can Be sure that when he enters a space truly, his glory will not leave it as it was. He loves us too much to allow us to continue in patterns of life that will ultimately destroy us. And so we come to the final thing I'd like us to see here about God's presence, and that is its worth. We've seen the weightiness of God's presence, the witness of God's presence. Now we must fix our eyes on its worth and remain there for as long as it takes. Look with me at the desperate statement of the people of Beth Shemesh in verse 20. They ask, having seen 70 people killed for approaching the ark in the wrong way, they say, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Well, this must be the reaction of everyone who truly encounters God. As we saw in the first point, God's weightiness can be crushing to those who are not approaching him in the right way. Remember also the, um, the Apostle Peter's response when he realizes that he's on the boat with the living God? What does he do? He asks Jesus to leave his boat because he's a sinful man. This is a right response to finding ourselves in God's presence. However, this, as we said, that's not everything that the ark tells us. On the one hand, This whole story serves as a sober reminder of what happens when we ignore God and try to win our battles and defeat our enemies, even evil enemies, without him. Yet it is also an incredible reminder that the throne that God sits on, and specifically the place where he chooses to meet us, is the seat of mercy. So this is acted out. For the Philistines, who were shown mercy on multiple occasions without even understanding all of the, the description of the ark, um, and this, all of the you know, multiple chances before God, God's glory de- devastates them. But it's also something that the people of God already knew. There was no reason for the people of Beth Shemeth to lose their lives because they had already heard the gospel, the gospel contained in the ark and visualized for them. And today, we have the message given to us so much more clearly. You see, at the cross of Christ, these two realities, judgment and mercy, crushing and curing, which are always, always both true of God's presence, are brought together finally and ultimately in one person and one event. On the cross, God's hand comes down heavy on Jesus. He's afflicted and forsaken and crushed by God himself. His cry rose to heaven just like the cries of the Philistines when God afflicted them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the case of the Philistines, we know that the reason was that a holy God was encountering a sinful people who had refused to repent. Christ, in contrast to this, though without sin, was crushed for the same reason, because he was taking our sin upon himself. He was showing how it was possible for God to show us mercy, by taking our guilt upon himself. Christ was crushed by the weight of God's law so that we might be able to live with the weight of his glory. That weightiness comes into our lives forever. The cross is the ultimate and final mercy seat where we encounter God. It's the place where heaven meets earth, where God is is so present that he even has flesh and blood and draws near to us. And by the cleansing that Jesus accomplishes there. He brings us permanently into the presence of God with safety. Remember what happened in the moment when Jesus died? The curtain in the temple that separated humankind from the Ark of the Covenant was torn in two from top to bottom. The kabod heaviness of God seen in his mercy releases us from having to bear the heaviness of the law. There, this is the worth of God's presence. There is more glory in mercy than in judgment. In chapter 6, the Philistine priests present a question, and with this we'll close. They say, give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Well, Christ gives us the final answer to this question. Yes, he will lift his hand from us, but not in order to leave us alone. Rather, he will lift his hand in order to give us his body broken for us so that we might receive mercy and live grounded eternally in his glory. I just want to close with the words of a song that I think is probably familiar to you. I think it just captures this so well. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us, His blood was the payment, payment. his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have come close to us, that we can stand right now in your presence and have an encounter with the living God, a life-giving encounter a life that flows into us and out from us as we are grounded in your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, for the glory of the cross, for the glory of mercy. Thank you, Lord, for the greater glory of mercy compared to judgment. Thank you that you took that judgment from us in order that we might live with you and walk with you. I pray that we will be able to do that this morning and for the rest of our lives, beginning with each day. Amen.